Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello, welcome to season five, episode three of It's a Continent. How's it going? I'm all good. It's getting there. We're like almost halfway through with it. Like in a good way. In a good way. <laughs> Just tolerated. <laughs> no, in a really good way. You know, we both love doing this. So yeah, yeah it's all good. No, we it's love to good. see it. Love to see it. Have been doing research alongside my daily Wordle, of course. You know, but my day doesn't feel complete unless I've solved it so well since you told me that i downloaded the wrong thing i feel like yeah, I've just been i had what, what were you downloading because it's a web-based platform well because i saw it and i saw oh it's been sold i've never heard of this wordle thing it must be an app so i literally just went on the app store and was like wordle downloaded this app and i've been playing it and i was like this game is terrible <laughs> Like, what is... You were scabbed. so... I was scabbed. I was scabbed. And that's why I'm kind of throwing it back to Candy Crush. Because I was like, I saw an ad for Candy Crush. I was like, I'll go and do that instead. That's a safe space. Yeah, you saw an ad on Wordle. That is already a red flag, but... Uh... Oh, okay. I, d- I didn't even know there were no ads in this. So I will get the correct version and come back with feedback. Because, yeah, whatever Wordle I had downloaded was terrible. I couldn't get past four letter words like it was terrible it, was yeah awful. it's five it's five letters hun. but anyway mm. it's uh, we'll see uh, give us an update when you've got the right version when i got <laughs> the right version isn't it? it's all good it's all good so what's our african pride tete michel pombasi i recently came across his story and i honestly just had to share it Tete Michel was born in 1941 in Togo. As a teenager, he came across a book titled Eskimos from Greenland to Alaska. This book basically changed his life and he became obsessed with the island. So for non-geographers out there like myself, Greenland is the world's largest island found in the North Atlantic Ocean. So age 16, he ran away from Togo and determined to make Greenland his new home. So that's a bit of a bit of a change, isn't it? Go from a nice warm climate to freezing cold temperatures. Why not? It took him eight years to arrive in the country, and this adventure saw him cross numerous African and European countries, with various individuals helping him along the way. And when he arrived in Greenland on June twenty seventh, nineteen sixty five. It was a bit of a cultural shock for him and the people, but something he embraced. And for the community at the time, he was the first African man to set foot on the island. He spent some time there, but eventually returned to Togo and decided to document his adventure in his book, An African in Greenland. Today, he lives in France, but plans to return and permanently settle in Greenland. Mm. I just love this story. Just that ability to be like, I need to be there. You know, you get those books when people read it and they're like, that is now my mission and goal in life. And they have like a calling. Mm, Do you know mm. what I mean? When I was hearing about his son, I was like, that's a calling. No one's ever called me. Well, apart from the telephone, but I've never had a calling in life. Not No calling so far. No, none so far. But, you know, I am open and available <laughs> to relocation. <laughs> Just say it. To relocation. <laughs> Fancy Greenland? It's a little bit too cold for me. But yeah, that is my African pride this week. So thank you for that one. Nice. 
to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for me reading it. That's not the Guardian. Today's episode is a character profile on Gamal Abdul Nasser. Nasser was born in 1918 in a village called Beni Moor, a small village in Upper Egypt. He grew up relatively poor. His father worked in a post office. His mother was the homemaker taking care of Nasser and his siblings. His father's job meant that he moved around a lot and studied in different cities across Egypt. At one point, he lived with his uncle Khalil Hussein, who was politically involved and participated in anti-British demonstrations, which got him arrested. The fact that the British are just everywhere. <laughs> it's like, Egypt? Yep, we're there. Always. Nigeria? Always. Yep, we're, we're there. there. We're Kenya? Yep, yep, we're there. Yep, we're there too. <laughs> <laughs> Hussein taught Nasser about the country's political situation and the ongoing fight for freedom from Britain. Nasser's father feared the consequences of getting involved in the country's politics and steered his family away from getting involved, but this didn't stop his son. So what exactly was going on in the country at the time? Well, Britain had occupied Egypt between 1882 and 1922, and there were on and off years. During those 40 years, the British kept Egypt's ruling monarchy in place, and in 1918, the Waft Party emerged, calling for the country's independence. The party played a crucial role in the Egyptian Revolution of 1919, which saw Egyptians come together in mass demonstrations against the British. The revolution eventually led to Britain granting Egypt independence on February 28, 1922. However, there were a few caveats to Egypt's independence. Britain still had control over foreign policy, military defence and the protection of minorities. So... They didn't really have independence, if I'm honest. Yeah, they really just did not want to let it go. And I think maybe for Britain, they were like, this is too early, early doors for us to let go. We'll give you a little bit, but we will keep this, 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 this. These are the conditions. We still need artefacts to put in the British Museum that we haven't finished. So if we could just stay here, carry on with that. When we're done, you can have your independence properly. It's just wild that they had control still of foreign policy. Obviously, you'd, you know, we keep that one because you are then <laughs> able to control. And military, like those are two of the biggest, for, well, for me anyway. It's supposed to be a side of sovereignty, really, but yeah. Yeah. Because of this, the country essentially found itself under the rulership of three groups, the British, the King and the Waft Party. This was not ideal, especially as there were tensions between all three groups. Eventually, Following the 1952 Egyptian revolution, the country gained a no-strings-attached independence. Or so they thought. Yeah, it's important to say, during that time period, Egypt also had a monarchy. So you then had these three groups coming together, being like, Britain had still some involvement when it came to foreign policy and military. Then you had, obviously, the monarchy there. And then you also have this political party. So they each ended up kind of owning different bits and pieces of the country in terms of how it moved forward. So all in all, it was chaos. Complete mess. So now back to Nasser, as he had a significant part to play in Egypt's independence story. So it was against this political backdrop that Nasser grew up. Aged 12, he joined an anti-British demonstration, which he increasingly became involved in, even going on to get arrested. And during a protest in 1934, he was physically hurt, decided against going to the hospital and ended up with a three-inch crescent-shaped scar on his forehead. Nasser described the scar as representing a mark of honour, reminding me of my national duty. That day, a great number of nationalists were assassinated and this increased my resilience to free the nation. He went on to study law at university, but soon abandoned his studies after a few months. 
but continued in his political commitment trying to drive change by joining different political groups. So having dropped out of university, Nasser joined Egypt's Royal Military Academy in 1937. Before Britain gave Egypt its first independence in 1922, the Egyptian military was controlled by Britain, of course. Following Egypt's first independence, the Waft Party decided to revamp the military. It went from being an exclusive group for society's elites to being more open and inclusive. The Waft Party had a plan. The party hoped that by bringing together young people from diverse backgrounds specifically, those who believed in a genuinely independent Egypt, they could finally free their country from British control. Whilst in the military, Nasser formed friendships with other soldiers, including Zachariah Mohiuddin, Abd al-Hakim Amar, and Anwar Sadat, who would go on to play key roles in Egypt's government. They formed a secret group called the Free Officers, and the group planned to use their position in the military to topple and rebuild the Egyptian government whilst also ousting all foreign influence from Egypt. And this also included the Egyptian monarchy. The monarchy became a target because they were seen as both corrupt and pro-British, and the military blamed the then king, King Farouk I, for Egypt's poor performance in the 1948 war with Israel. It's really interesting because this is just a classic coup out here. They're out here in, you know, in the military, we're going to form a group and just use that to bring down the government. Yeah, it's interesting that they had that plan, like, well, not from the right from the off, but I do think the fact that the country didn't do so well in the 1948 war whereby they were poorly equipped and everything else that was going on, I think really fueled them to be like, we need to make a change. Obviously, the country can't keep going on like this, where we've got this weird, these three groups. Yeah, I think as well, because the king is seen as being almost complicit with Britain, I suppose, and because a monarchy is like a ruling power as well as the British. Mm. So I suppose they probably thought that there was more in common with the monarchy and Britain than themselves. Yeah. So they had to topple over these structures in order to gain true independence. Definitely. The Three Officers Movement had six principles, which included the elimination of imperialism, the destruction of feudalism, the establishment of social justice, the formation of a strong Egyptian army, the creation of sound democratic life, and the liberation of the government from the control of capitalists. I mean, hey, these are pretty good points to me. Kind of here for it. Yeah, and you'd think at this point, with three groups involved, none of them thought of tackling this at any point in a <laughs> well-structured way. Like, they're not asking much, you know, sound democratic life, <laughs> fair enough. Social justice, fair enough. Like... Yeah, the final point about the liberation of the government from the control of capitalists is something that perhaps a lot of countries should still be aiming for, but, you know... <laughs> at a minimum. During its early years, Sadat led the organisation, but he eventually found himself in prison. Then Nasser took over, and the group grew at a steady pace, but wasn't really making much progress until the 1950s. The 1950s saw the Egyptian Revolution of 1952 take place. This is also known as the 23rd of July Revolution, led by the Free Officers Movement. This was a significant moment in the country's history. The revolution stemmed from obviously existing anti-British sentiment, which was further fueled by events that saw Britain kill 40 and injure 70 Egyptian police officers. However, the monarchy took no action against Britain. And so in July 1952, Nasser and the Free Officers Movement decided to take control of the situation through a coup. The British were finally removed 
and the monarchy and the then king, King Farouk I, was allowed to flee the country. The situation in which the king fled the country is interesting because literally NASA and the Free Officers Movement were basically like, you either go or something terrible is going to happen to you. If we you, yeah, you or go. we'll make you go <laughs> and something terrible is going to happen to you. They literally gave him a time and date. And I think it was actually on that day itself. And NASA basically said the following words to the king. In view of what the country has suffered in recent past, the complete vacuity prevailing in all corners as a result of your bad behaviour, your toying with the constitution and your disdain for the wants of the people, no one rests assured of life, livelihood and honour. And he goes on to say that bribe takers find protection beneath your shadow in addition to security, excessive wealth and many extravagances at the expense of the hungry and impoverished people. What a message. I was just like, just calling him out. And I think one of the things with Nasa is that he's always kept this sort of, because obviously from his background, you know, he wasn't raised in this kind of like huge extravagances and a well-off background, you know, he was pretty poor. And so I feel like he resonated quite well with that community Mm. as well. And in this speech, the fact that he kind of brings that up as well for me was like, yeah, he's like, I see what you are doing to these communities and you've got to go. An absolute read. I love it. Egyptians welcomed this development, but they were apprehensive of what this organisation would be like. And the moment and mood was described as a festive silence. So it's just that kind of like wait and see kind of meme. In the wake of changes to the country's structure, a new leader was announced, General Mohammed Naguib. In 1953, he became the country's first post-revolution president. Surprisingly, Nasser initially chose to lead from the shadows and control the country through the president. However, tensions between Naguib and Nasser emerged, with Naguib being involved in an assassination attempt on Nasser. This eventually saw him pushed out and placed under house arrest. In 1954, Nasser emerged from behind the scenes and positioned himself as prime minister and then in 1956, he became president. Right. My question is, when I was doing research on this is, why did he not just come out from the front, right out of the gates? Mm. Just this sort of, because he was essentially just controlling the country, but from the back. If you're going to take on these policies, you're going to make these changes, be the face of it. Why have someone else be the face of it? Was well, just my... Yeah, a bit like the apprentice tactic of when they're like, oh, no, I won't be project manager. Just let someone else do it. <laughs> yeah, let someone else do it. And then all of a sudden, you're still giving all of the ideas and not listening to anybody else. You're still barking orders. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It was just interesting because then he eventually then goes on three years later to place himself as president anyways. You've got to play the log game. You've got to think ahead he could write a nice linkedin post on how he played and paved his own path to becoming president of his country Mm -hmm. had to learn from behind the scenes but like you're doing the job anyway why are you not just owning it because you eventually end up doing that but i guess he had his reasons one of the things nasa was a strong advocate of was pan-arabism also known as arab nationalism this is an ideology that focuses on the unification of the arab world Syria and Egypt attempted this in 1958. Before the two countries came together, Syria faced strong instability and asked for unification with Egypt, which Nasser accepted. In 1958, they came together to form the United Arab Republic, the UAR, with Nasser as its president. Nasser hoped this would someday include the entire Arab world, 
But this idea was short-lived as Syria withdrew from Egypt three years later due to feeling dominated by the stronger, more populous and more efficient Egypt. As is often the case whenever these sort of federations come about. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And when he introduced this, when it came to representation, Nasser was leaning way more towards Egypt versus Syria. Mm. And so obviously they're going to be feeling like, well, what is the point of this? We could, yeah, we might as well just do it ourselves versus being under you and then actually feeling even less than everybody else and not having that equality with Egyptians. So it's fair enough, to be honest. Egypt continued to be known as the Arab Republic until 1971. During this time, there were also tensions and conflict between Arab countries and Israel. The first Arab-Israeli war took place in 1948, the second in 1956, and the third war, also known as the Six-Day War, took place on June 5th to 10th, 1967. Israel had successfully won the third war, having launched an air and ground attack that destroyed Egypt's air force and land army. At the time, Nasser was in power, but following this defeat, he addressed the country in a television broadcast and announced his resignation, considering this huge defeat. But the population would not have it. They went out in protest, asking him to reconsider, which he did, and he continued his post as president. Is that the first time? I've never seen someone be like, oh no, <laughs> can you come back? <laughs> it's very rare for them to A, resign. Do you know oh, what I mean? Oh, tell it me. You know, normally you get... <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, I just, I just remembered where we where are at the moment. <laughs> Bringing me right back down to earth. Yeah, A, resign, but also to publicly admit that you were at fault and that mistakes were made and that you actually feel like, oh, there's words that he used and I'm not going to get it 100%, but he basically says, it's time for me to kind of join you civilians. Do you see what yeah. I mean? Like he says those words and it was kind of him being like, I failed you guys. For me anyway, to do it that openly... No, we didn't win, had a massive loss. I no longer think I'm fit enough to be in this position. I'm going to go. I think just says something about his character. I'm not saying he was all good, though, as people listening to this, but I'm just saying this element and just this behaviour is not something that we see or we have seen. Julius Nyerere. Yeah, I was going to say Nyerere, yeah. Yeah, the first leader to resign and actually walk away. Obviously, NASA came back because they wanted him back. But just yeah, sometimes resignation is the calling. Yeah, that's right. Three years later, on September 28th, 1970, age 52, NASA passed away from a heart attack. During his rule, there were both successes and failures. He not only freed the country from Britain, but he also helped accelerate industrialization, introduced land reforms that helped make things more equal and gave women more rights, including voting. The removal of the monarchy led to their land being used to build hospitals, schools and develop infrastructure. But as always, there were questionable behaviours and policies. NASA controlled the media, telephones were tapped, people's rights were ignored. And of course, the country was a one-party state, which, you know, I just, I don't like that phrase. Classic line. But yeah, even when it came to giving women the right to vote, he dragged his feet. And I think it's very easy to be like, there were successes, but how some of those successes came to be, especially when it came to women at the time, it was a lot of effort and women fought hard. There will be discussions of this in soon to come book. 
Oh, yeah. We don't want to give any spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. But yeah, it's an interesting story. There he is. Gamal Abdel Nasser. That is an episode of Egypt that does not involve pyramids. Or, Definitely. Because actually, as a country, obviously all countries have gone through a lot. But when you do actually think about that whole history the pyramids and all of a sudden you know you've got this monarchy and then britain being here for like 40 odd years and country has been through it which african country hasn't eh yeah that is true that is true but yeah that is us where are we next week or is this a point where you're like i cannot quite remember <laughs> no, you know what? no next week we are revisiting an internet sensation okay okay this is number Ooh, do we we will reveal it in the episode when you come back in okay. next time. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I know we say this every time we do this, but I am actually really excited about this one. I'm really excited. Yeah, no. It was a trip down memory lane writing the script for that one. Yeah, we'll talk about it all in two weeks' time. Sounds good. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at It's a Continent and on Instagram at It's a Continent Pod. Perfect. And we will see you guys in two weeks' time. It's a good one. See, see ya. ya. Bye. Bye.